The Story of an Illness Hi, I'm Galia. I will tell you about my diagnosis, identity disorder, about how I live with five personalities, and about how I got into a sect and then I was able to get out of it by myself. A mentally ill person. It felt good putting it exactly like this, mentally ill person. It makes me happy because I no longer need to hide it. I can be myself. I had to write this book. It was necessary. I could never tell the truth to my parents, my friends. But I need my story to become reality, not fiction. I know that if I tell my story to you, my life will become easier. I will be able to move on, to never fear being myself again. It's scary just telling someone about your diagnosis like this. To tell the truth, you can see people's attitude change immediately when you do. Inadvertently, they stop trusting you. They become alienated. To them, my diagnosis makes me into something unknown, something incomprehensible, perhaps something dangerous. I understand this mechanism of the human psyche, so I keep quiet about my illness. At a glance, I appear completely normal. Sometimes I just disappear for a week or two. It just so happened that I have two different diagnoses, as each was given by a different doctor. The first doctor, let's call him A, diagnosed me with identity disorder, but then changed it to schizotypal personality disorder after he saw me flap my arms around like they were wings, believing I was a bird and being unable to control this state. Some part of me realized that I wasn't in fact a bird, but that part was so insignificant that I spent a good 20 minutes flying around my flat, enjoying myself, truly living the life. But that is not what this book is about. It's about my struggle against illness, about how to conquer your own brain how to fit into society, how to find a way to enjoy life in spite of any difficulties. Then I had to change doctors, and the new one, let's call him B, again diagnosed me with identity disorder, plus psychosis. In movies, this disorder is depicted as having multiple personalities, usually resulting in incredibly vibrant stories. I can't believe it myself, that I'm such a deeply mentally ill person. Often, I'm shocked by my own thoughts, because a healthy person can't possibly think such things. Of course, I was also diagnosed with depression, depersonalization, derealization. I can't live without antipsychotics. I know that because I tried to. I have a favorite diagnosis, schizotypal personality disorder. If it is accurate, it would mean that I didn't become like this because of mental trauma. I was just born with a quirk. Of course, that is also disputable. Medical professionals still haven't fully researched such illnesses. But schizotypal doesn't feel like my case somehow. It makes it sound like I'm not responsible for what my multiple personalities think or want. Like I can just accept them and live with it. But when I tell myself that I have an identity disorder, it makes me start hating myself, hating that thing inside my skull. 
An identity disorder is a mental mechanism. It's when your brain takes you to another reality, different from the one where you actually exist. It's a defense mechanism that makes one perceive events happening to them as if they were happening to someone else. I still don't want to believe that all of this was created by my brain in order to protect me. It makes me want to tell it, you're sick. How could you create such a disgusting human being? But nothing is perfect. My brain is broken, and that's a fact. I'm having a psychotic episode right now as I'm writing this. My fingers refuse to obey me. My whole body is getting weak and fuzzy, like I have just downed two liters of whiskey. My face is going numb. I can't feel my jaw, as if it isn't even mine. My anxiety is spiking. I'm afraid of writing poorly, in a way that won't let you, my reader, understand me. Yesterday I wanted to go out with a friend, have a piece of cake at a cafe, but I couldn't. I just laid down in the middle of the street. I laid there for a while, then my friend took my body home. I hate it when an episode happens suddenly. Of course, it is never completely sudden. The first signs always appear in advance. But I always hope that they can just go away. Inside of me, there is no one to boycott a decision. No one to tell me, just die. One of my personalities wants to act, and the other says, you aren't going to do this. No way. I won't let you. There was a similar situation with writing this book. Inside of me, there is a girl who desires to stay unknown. But her power has waned, so I can act now. You might ask, who are you? Who is this I? There is no answer to that. Or rather, the answer is complex and multi-layered. Me is a personality that I've chosen as the primary one out of many. And so the question remains, who is the I that chooses? After reading the whole story, I think you will arrive at the answer on your own. I'll begin the story from my visit to the cardiologist, which ended with an ambulance ride to the hospital. They confused a panic attack with heart problems. But how did I end up at the cardiologist's? I was having a daytime nap in a room with a sea view. We were on a vacation in Bulgaria. We rented a small flat in a cliffside building. I hadn't come out to the beach for two days. I told my husband I got heat stroke and was under the weather. What was really happening is that I couldn't go outside in a swimsuit. I thought people were looking at me, staring at me, seeing right through my skin and sticking needles there, twisting them, killing my flesh. The evening before, we sat on the balcony watching the sunset, drinking wine with clear fruity notes as I told my husband that I could no longer talk to people. I knew with certainty that people hated me and wanted to kill me. I don't know why he didn't care. We have known each other since high school. Anton is the kindest man I have ever met. We had been living together for 10 years. He probably just got used to all the nonsense that tends to come out of my mouth. He didn't even leave me when I joined a cult. 
He stayed with me through it all, but we'll talk about it a little later. We waited for the sun to fall behind the horizon and for the night to paint the sky and the sea black. Then I went to sleep, waking up together with my husband and our daughter. We had cereal for breakfast. I made coffee and drank two cups. Then they went to the beach while I stayed home and went to bed again. A pain in the leg jolted me awake. I got up and went to the bathroom. My heart was racing and I was a little dizzy. I entered the bathroom, sat on the toilet, and passed out. Lost consciousness and fell, hitting my chin on the tile floor. I was lucky I was sitting down when it happened. I don't know how much time I spent lying there on the floor. When I woke up, my face was covered in blood. Nearby, I noticed the shards of my front teeth. I crawled to the living room to look for my phone and call my husband. Our vacation was over. We went back to Prague by car. An 11-hour ride, we only made one stop. First, I went to the surgeon to get the wound on my chin stitched up. Then, the cardiologist. He took an ultrasound scan, and I was preparing for the worst, confident he was going to diagnose me with heart problems. But the doctor said that my fainting was more likely because of neurological problems. I needed further diagnostics. After his words, the noise from the street grew unbearably loud. Everything turned a yellowish hue. The doctor started talking very slowly, dragging his words out. I stood up but felt an intense weakness. My heart was pounding. Felt like 199 beats per second. They put me on the bed. I couldn't get up. My body didn't respond to orders from the brain. But the worst part began when I started fainting again, just passing out. I couldn't keep focus on anything. I was afraid that if I close my eyes, that I will never wake up again. It was hard to breathe. This was how I ended up in the hospital, where they did all the emergency checkups and told me that I'm healthy. But they said it's recommended to visit a neurologist. I've had panic attacks before, but never of such intensity. Five years prior to this, I woke up at night because I couldn't breathe. But a part of me understood that it's just fear, just anxiety, and that I just need to overcome it. It happened at night, at my house. I went to the kitchen, poured myself a glass of milk, and watched the stars through the window. About ten minutes had passed, and my breath was back. I've been to the therapist before my ambulance ride to the hospital, but back then, I was diagnosed with pregnancy-related depression. I sought a therapist because I found myself going down to the subway just to stand on the edge of the train platform and think about jumping. I knew I wouldn't actually do it, but simply considering the possibility had a calming effect on me, gave me the strength to carry on with my life. Shortly after, I started fantasizing about going outside with a knife in hand, and sometimes, in my imagination, I saw myself stabbing passers-by. I could no longer control my brain, and so I finally decided to see a therapist. I signed up for an appointment at Enrosis Clinic on Vasilyevsky Island. 
my insurance afforded me seven therapist visits free of charge. I had no money for a paid doctor. Therapy detected childhood trauma. The therapist was trying to convince me that I'm worthy of life. This is what I wrote in my notebook then. I need to reach the subway as quickly as I can, or something bad can happen on my way there. If someone isn't smiling while looking at me, they must hate me. Do they want to kill me? Do they want to rape me? I don't want to trust people. It's safer not to. I feel like I'm useless, inconvenient, like I've been used and discarded. I don't want to see this world anymore. I don't want to see that my parents hate me. They're unhappy because of me. If it wasn't for me, my father wouldn't have started drinking. It'd be better if I died or didn't exist in the first place. Better and easier for everyone. No one would suffer. No one would be unhappy. If I didn't exist, my parents would have lived a long, happy life. Today, I decided that I want to be happy always. To feel constant joy, constant movement. This eclipses my hatred. I won't let anyone take advantage of my goodness. I want to humiliate others with my happiness, my beauty. To have fun with no bounds. I have to beg everyone to love me. Despite my parents, I will achieve nothing in my life. Just to let them know that they have failed in bringing up a good person. I don't want to love anyone. I am a bad person with nothing good to offer to anyone. I hate people, so what do I have to live for? I want to die. I provoke aggression in people, just to see if I can handle it. I fear people. It's easier to hate them. I won't let anyone humiliate me. Nobody would dare. What am I? How is this I formed? Why do I want to cease to exist? Why can't I control myself? How did I become like this? I don't want to hate and despise everyone. How do I stop this? All of these thoughts occupied my head without any permission. They simply took me captive. They thought themselves. They were tearing me apart. I was losing my connection with the world, constantly filled with feelings of hatred towards myself and others. I was 30 then. How did I live before that? I feel shocked as I am writing these words. One thing is sorting through your thoughts at a therapist's office or while reflecting alone at home. Entirely another is putting them on paper. It feels like true madness. During the second year of my marketing major, we had a psychology class. The professor gave us a writing assignment, something about life. Before I was to turn the assignment in, I had to edit it by adding the word us. I thought there were too many I's and me's. It didn't feel right. Later, the professor told me to stay after class. He said, if that us wasn't there, 
he would have thought that I'm sociopathic. Well, he was right. One of my personalities can be called sociopathic, but it's fine. There are many people inside of me, and some of them are very humane. I am gentle, kind, and caring, but only when I feel completely safe. And that happens very rarely. I want to be a kind person, but when I take a good, hard look at myself, it becomes obvious that I'm forcing myself to be one. That's what I love myself for. The ability to overcome my own nature. But let's go back to how the situation unfolded after my episode at the cardiologist. The neurologist prescribed an MRI head scan. The results were good, and the doctor said he doesn't see any reasons for fainting. So he referred me to a psychiatrist. I gladly made an appointment. My very first visit, I was prescribed antidepressants. The diagnosis was depression and panic attacks. I started going to the psychiatrist every month and to the therapist every week. But I was only getting worse. Panic attacks became extremely frequent. I couldn't leave the house on my own. The reason is simple. I lost control of myself. For example, one time I was sitting in a cafe and at some point started feeling like everyone was looking only at me. The world turned yellow. Every noise felt like it was going to tear my head apart. I wanted to puke. One time, I had to lie down in the middle of the street because the panic attack was so intense, I couldn't walk. I curled into a fetal position. I was afraid. I called my husband and asked him to come. People just walked around me. Only one person stopped to ask if I'm okay. I couldn't use public transport. When riding the tram, I repeated to myself, they don't want to hurt me. I am safe. But it didn't help. I stopped seeing people as people. They were robots. Robots all around me. What do robots feel? What do they think? I couldn't possibly know. On the next stop, I got off and ran away in horror. These are the symptoms of depersonalization and derealization. The most terrifying episode for me was when I got on the tram and my memory blacked out right there. The tram passed five stops, but I couldn't remember it happening at all. I try to take care of myself. I visit my beautician every week. One day I went and I couldn't recognize the building despite having come here many times before. It's like I've never seen the place. I didn't know where I'm supposed to go. In moments like these, my brain turned itself off so it could have some rest. Briefly stopping all those thoughts and sensations from racing around inside it. I was trying to hide reality from me or from itself using panic attacks. Every attack would end the same way with me passing out. Then I would wake up and feel a little better. It is time to ask, why did all of this happen to me? There are questions that doctors cannot answer definitively. Much of it is still a mystery to me. Or perhaps 
I simply refuse to believe that the human brain can do this, that this is really happening to me. It's hard to accept that you are a sick person when you look perfectly normal on the outside. I am ashamed of who I am. I try to convince myself that I deserve to live. Unfortunately, my warped psyche is connected to my childhood, to constant mental abuse I suffered from my parents. I used to always fear for my life. My father used to drink, then beat my mother and shout at me. But my mom kept saying that I should love my father. She made me act gentle and courteous around him. While reading the above, it's impossible for you to understand the horror that I experienced all the time. I will reveal more of my experience as I talk about my personalities, about their character and problems, about how they emerged and how I try to get along with them. Now you will read a story about a girl who was abused by her family. It is an autobiographical story. I wrote it to better convey my feelings. This memory begins with mom running into my room. I am sitting on the carpeted floor in my pajamas holding my dolls. A book about Uncle Stopa, the policeman, is lying around nearby. Mom tosses a jacket onto my shoulders, grabs my hand, and starts dragging me outside. I only have the time to put one arm through the sleeve. Mom's eyes are full of terror, bulging like they were about to fall out of their sockets. She doesn't say anything, just tosses a pair of slippers under my feet. We run downstairs. I trip. Mom shouts, faster. It's dark outside. Street lights are flickering. We start running down the road. Mom keeps looking behind her. I'm blindly obeying the adult, not a single thought in my head. But mom's fear is contagious. Like an electric current, it passes through our tightly interlocked palms. I can't keep up. Mom has to drag me along. One of my slippers comes off and is left lying there on the road. After a couple minutes, we turn right and stop at the house of mom's friend, Tatiana. Mom yanks the door open with such force it comes off the hinges. We enter the house, pass through the hallway, and hide behind the bed. Ms. Tatiana turns the lights off. There's three of us in the room. I lay on the floor, face pressed down against the dusty carpet. Then comes a blow on the door. The wall starts shaking as if an earthquake had suddenly started. Father was pounding the door with his hands and feet, with force that seemed immeasurable. I still cannot write the word, Dad. It is painful to me. It is supposed to be a word embodying something kind and gentle. Father shouts, Open up, bitches! I have an axe. I'll kill you all. We can hear him approaching the windows, grass rustling under his feet. The window glass starts ringing as he strikes it with his fists. I feel like I am falling down, father's voice growing fainter and more distant with every second. I open my arms and let the darkness swallow me, because I cannot live in the real moment anymore. I want to die. I sink my teeth into the carpet. Mom covers her face with her hands. No, this isn't the same person who picked me up from kindergarten, smiling and helping me put on my boots. There, 
behind the thin glass, is an animal incapable of feeling anything but hatred. In his desire to quench this hatred, he picked up the axe. After a while, everything just grows quiet. He has left. We stayed there on the floor for another hour, perhaps, not moving an inch, until Miss Tatiana managed to raise her head and crawl to check the windows. Morning came. Mom, still silent, again tossed the jacket over my shoulders, grabbed my hand, and took me home. I walked in someone else's boots which were too big for me, and for the first time in my life, I couldn't breathe. It hurts, I whispered, pointing to my chest. Here. Mom said, quit fooling around. We need to get home while he is still sober. In my imagination, I broke free from Mom's grip and ran away from this city, from this entire world, to somewhere where everybody loves each other. This seemingly understandable desire to escape destroyed my life. It turned into an unhealthy urge that made me incapable of living among normal people. Mom was the chief accountant at a successful company. She was tall and had the face of a strong-willed woman, a confident stride, and an authoritative character. She was full of life. But she rarely spoke and never hugged or caressed me because she had no strength left for that. Mom had to survive. Father was once a handsome man with brown hair, dark eyes, and a black mustache. He fed stray cats every day, even taking some of them home. He used to have some softness to him, a propensity for kindness. We slowly ascended the porch. The doors weren't locked. I entered my room. Mom went to the kitchen. Father was sleeping on the bed, snoring loudly. I picked my dolls up and got in my bed. I could hear Mom wash the dishes. That day changed me forever. I don't know whom I hated more at that moment. My father or my mother for letting him treat her like this. She accepted his rules of the game and continued to insist that we have a model family. I was lying down on the bed and I was feeling nothing, like subtracting two from two and getting zero, or mixing every color and getting black as a result. I was completely empty, drained, like a cracked face from which the water is leaked out, leaving the flowers inside to dry up until they could fall apart from the slightest touch leaving nothing behind except dust. We sat at the dinner table in the kitchen, him right, her left, and me in the middle. I broke the hot dog apart with my fork. No one talked about yesterday. The light bulb in the chandelier was flickering. The wind was howling outside the window, and I watched as it blew the last leaves off the apple tree. I stood up from the table. Kiss your father, said Mom. I leaned down and kissed his unshaven cheek. Later, he will say that he remembers nothing and that it couldn't have happened, that Mom made it all up. I died that day 
for the first time. But having lost myself, I discovered a new goal in life, to put an end to people like my father. That means my psyche has found a path, following which it will grow, develop, collect information, and make decisions. I just cried while rereading this story. Did all of this really happen to me? I don't remember much from my childhood, but I described only one day, and there were thousands of days like that. Lying down in my bed, I was afraid he might enter my room. Afraid of myself, too. I wanted only one thing. To kill him. There were a couple of times when I went as far as to grab a knife from the kitchen, but fear always turned out to be stronger than my desire to kill. And so I started hating myself, too, for being so weak. I turned into a pathetic, scared little animal. This is how I ended up joining a cult. Yes, I had been looking for a way out of my situation and joined a cult. And I left it on my own, eventually. I don't like talking about it because it's embarrassing, but I must. Maybe it'll help someone avoid a similar experience. I was on my second year of university when a friend told me she is seeing a man who can tell fortunes, using cards, and has the ability to clear one's chakras. Chakras are a concept from Buddhism. There are spots in one's body that energy passes through. So I went to see this magician. He was a stocky man in his 50s who wore his long gray hair and a ponytail. He lived in a rented apartment that was small but very cozy. It reeked of incense, and in the middle of it there was a blue couch. I sat on that couch and felt like I was in a place of safety. The man, let's call him Bro, told me with absolute confidence that I have a gift. That I could wield the ability to change the world according to my desires. I only needed to learn how to use it, and for that I would have to study under him. And so I became a sorcerer's apprentice. How did that happen? The backstory is very banal. My father was an alcoholic who turned aggressive from drink and used physical force. He kept my mother so busy that she had no time to dedicate to me. I grew up alone and unloved. The world felt like a dangerous place. Then Bro offered me to join a new family, to start living among my own, among other people who had the gift. He wanted to tell me the truth about who I am and teach me to survive in this mad world. Of course, with the problems in my family, I blamed myself for the cruelty of the world. Living with that burden wasn't easy, but now I was offered the opportunity to become special. This feeling of being special changed my world, made it feel friendlier. Things were pretty harmless at first. We learned how to clear chakras and tell fortunes using cards. We studied Buddhism, astrology, and magic. We talked much about my pain and tried to find the reason for it. Often, we sat in the kitchen, drinking coffee and smoking. 
I could smoke a pack in only two hours. Later, Bro told me that I'm not human, that I'm something more than a soul, that I'm embodied spirit, that our mission is to return to ourselves and become real again. Spirit despises all worldly things, he said. The first thing that made me doubt the whole affair was the mandatory vow to never have children. If I was to ever have a child, they said, it would make me too attached to the material world. We practiced renouncement of desires and attachments. Bro thought that he was God, but not God in the usual religious sense. Rather a spirit who lives in the world of pure energy, located above and beyond the material dimension. He told us that he used to be a construction worker and almost died one time falling from the fifth floor. Then he realized that he must be doing something wrong, that he must find out who he really is, instead of leading a futile worldly existence. That was the first time I saw the connection between the desire to be special and the feelings of danger present in the person. I also believed that I was a spirit, but I wasn't sure of what level. They had a hierarchy of their own. I loved Bro like my own father, and I wanted to prove to him that I can abandon worldly attachments. One time during our lessons, I entered a state of astral projection. We practiced out-of-body experiences as an important step on our journey to the self, the spirit. I became an Egyptian goddess, Sarah. Members of our cult believe that people reincarnate after death and might live several lives before they find their true self. So, I was locked up in some kind of tower, but I had a virgin brought to me by my servant. Having killed him and drunk his blood, I ascended above my body. I lived through this experience as if it was real, and I truly believed it was. Then I looked at my fingers and saw that they have shrunk. I screamed. Bro came and started stretching my fingers out. I think that was the first clear episode of my mental illness, my personality disorder. Though I did have my first panic attack long before that, when I couldn't breathe. I really wanted to prove to Bro that I'm worthy of his love. During our studies, we practiced meditation, but we gave very strange interpretations to the feelings and sensations that arose during it. The whole time, I felt beside myself with joy, believing that I can bring good into the world by clearing chakras. Positive emotions emanated from me, Space around me was charged with them. I always smiled when going outside. I was no longer the unhappy child, rejected by society and needed by no one. I became a spirit capable of bringing good into the world. The structure of my personal history, which was being constructed by my brain, has changed. Three years passed like this. But eventually, I started hearing things like this. People are worthless. We mustn't become attached to them. We mustn't love them. We mustn't care about them. In this new iteration of Bro's philosophy, people became expendable. 
we were supposed to take their life force in order to rise beyond the material world. We considered any situation from a position of manipulation. Bro read to us books on neurolinguistic programming and told us to use such knowledge on people we talk with. I became fixated on myself and on how to better use humans. Bro called them worthless apes. Only we, the spirits, have the right to live. All others must obey our strength. With time, I noticed that I was becoming stressed and bitter. I looked down on people and believed them to be inferior, undeserving of my sympathy. One time I was riding the subway. The train was heavily crowded. I was standing in the aisle, and opposite of me sat a mother with her child. He accidentally kicked me, and I said, Calm your runt down, or I will do it myself. I threw up when I got off the train. I was so terrified of myself. How did I become like this? So spiteful and bitter. It scared me. I started trying to listen to my own thoughts, to my reactions to Bro's words. Nevertheless, I continued seeing him and repeating his ideas about the principles governing the universe, like the good student that I was. One Friday, he declared that I must renounce my body, stop seeing it as something important and intimate. I was to undress and stay in the nude during our classes. That would prove that I'm truly liberated and could enter a new level of spiritual consciousness. It was embarrassing, but I complied. When I remember it now, I become disgusted with myself. How could I be so stupid, so malleable? I didn't want to lose bro. But all these strange situations made me sit down and analyze what was happening. Of course, I started with asking myself, why don't I feel right getting naked in front of him? I am a spirit, after all. I try to relinquish worldly desires and attachments. It's weird how quickly I reached the conclusion that Bro must simply be a sick, scared bastard who invented all this nonsense to convince himself that he is above things that frighten him. I started using meditation and self-reflection to see the whole picture, trying to improve my way of thinking. Because despite having these thoughts about Bro, I still couldn't leave him, even though I wanted to. I decided it was time to change myself again, to become a new person with new knowledge about myself, to start interpreting events differently. I started reading books on psychology, philosophy, sociology, and neurophysiology, and eventually I managed to overcome myself. I left the cult. On that day, I cried. Because despite all the horrors, I experienced moments of genuine happiness while I was there. I liked what I was told to believe. After leaving the cult, I understood that my own brain scares me. It's so easy to make someone evil just by giving them convincing ideas. I joined the cult to feel loved, to change the world for the better. And I ended up becoming a cruel and bitter person. 
how could I trust my own brain after that? It led me to the sect because I was lost and mentally ruined by reality. Then I did whatever my new family told me because I didn't want to lose them. Even though I realized they were in the wrong. It was terrible. What does that story tell us about the way we think? Our thinking doesn't exist separately from our desires. The two are closely linked together. It's all completely spontaneous. We need self-reflection to avoid that. To know where did a thought form come from, why did it occur, and what can it give you personally? During meditation, I started looking for the causes of my desire to abandon emotion. How did I decide it was important to me? How does it correlate with the words of Bro? Why is it important to him? I thank my genes for making me a humane person. I think that was what saved me. Or maybe my terrible parents saved me. Because at some point, I told myself, I will never become as cruel as they are. But Bro and my new family turned out to be even worse. They hated themselves, and they hated the world, wanting to control it. People join cults because they cannot find their place in the universe. Unable to feel useful, they want to stop being afraid. They want to become a part of something bigger than themselves. They end up being betrayed by their own brain, although it wants the best for them. It wants safety and the fulfillment of needs. It's a scary paradox. But I'm one of those people who always look on the bright side of things. And I figured it out. Self-reflection. The understanding that we don't know how our personality and mentality work, and that we need to fill in these blanks. Yes, the desire to find a new family was all mine. But I don't want to say that it came from me. Where did it come from then? Negative connections within the brain. Some measure of disidentifying with your brain in order to reconstruct the story of your own life, your personality. Self-reflection helped me finally leave the cult. It changed my understanding of personality and the concept of I. They don't exist. Because I became something I didn't want to be. There is the reality of what our brains do, and there is what we tell ourselves. These two things are very often at odds with each other. So, there is no personality. If it wasn't for self-reflection, I would be long confined to a psychiatric ward, probably. I saved myself from such a fate by studying neurophysiology. It helped me convince myself that I have the right to live and that what's happening to me is normal. In the sense that I'm not some evil that must be exterminated, that I can exist in the world. Yes, I still live with the feeling that I don't deserve to exist. What my brain has created in order to protect me from reality is terrifying and disgusting. I feel like I am worthless, with nothing to offer to anyone. Such thoughts are the result of my relationship with my parents. I was convinced that it was my fault that they treated me so unkindly. 
Before passing out in the bathroom and meeting my therapist, I tried to solve my problems in a less radical way. I started doing self-reflection together with a philosopher. That, of course, became a trigger for symptoms that were already there. But I thought they were just facets of my personality, resulting from my futile desire to save the world. To this day, I can only do things I consider beautiful, things that can give people joy. Otherwise, I run into some programming that is stuck in my head. I realize that it is there, but I still cannot do away with it. The programming says, if I don't create beautiful things, I don't deserve to live. Self-reflection techniques are quite similar to meditation. Here's what my philosopher sent me when I asked her to structure what we were doing. Techniques. Distancing. Alertness. Judgmentlessness. Changing viewpoints. Judgmentlessness was the hardest part. Because my brain, my amygdala, tended to clearly separate all events into safe and dangerous ones, that made it hard to be judgmentless, because it was how all my emotions and actions were produced. At that time, I was reading many books on sociology, on altruism, I was stunned by a social experiment where one had to choose between helping a person lying on the street and making it on time to an important lecture. Most respondents chose to ignore the miserable fellow in order not to disappoint those waiting for them at the lecture hall. That's how our brain makes choices for us while evaluating the situation. Before I had taken therapy for a while, my understanding of myself was very limited. The I was incongruent with my real mindscape. In this sense, you could say that I is merely one of the pieces of the puzzle as far as our mental scape goes. For a person to become whole, one needs to start thinking about thinking. To reconstruct oneself. Do we realize what internal structures determine our way of thinking? As neurophysiology shows, Consciousness has significant limitations. When I joined the cult, did I do that consciously? I made my own choices. I decided to see a person who offered to clear my chakras, and I happily agreed to take part in it. At a first glance, you might think that I acted fully consciously. But was it so? What urged me to join the sect? What did I really want from it? Is our personality formed with involvement from our consciousness or without it? Do we follow the way our vision of the world is formed? I think that free will only comes into play when the person starts reflecting on their own thinking. Consciousness only sees the results of thinking. This realization scares me. On the other hand, consciousness has a certain property an ability to categorize information, to enlarge the system. But for that, you need to deliberately upload information. To start seeing the hidden mechanisms of thinking, you need to start doubting your thoughts first. I started doing self-reflection with the help of a philosopher because my brain didn't want to listen to me. It was doing its own thing. 
I started getting suicidal thoughts. At first, while I was still in the cult and wanted to figure my own thinking out, I used a technique invented by the Epicureans. Depersonalization. You imagine that you're leaving the earth, that you're suspended in space, and regard your own thoughts from this distant point. During self-reflection, it's important to learn how to think in terms of interactions between objects, because objects don't exist on their own without interacting with others. To be frank, I used to believe that thinking about thinking can be used to make aggressive people more benevolent. My brain takes for granted the idea that I am ugly and must constantly prove to the world that I have the right to exist. It got that idea from my relationship with my parents. I saw that I annoy people, that I ruin their lives. For my brain, that is the truth. But is it really the truth? An important feature of self-reflection is the necessity of thinking in the here and now instead of describing your state based on some model. I asked myself about what I am thinking about a particular situation in the here and now, in the current moment, not about how I can explain or describe it. Any person must work on their thinking in order to really be human. What does it mean? It means you must learn how to control your own thinking process. There are two important states of thinking about thinking. You can think using an intellectual object, or you can think about the intellectual object. Unfortunately, my brain still thinks using the experience it acquired during my childhood. Yes, on another level of thinking, I can create a model of that experience and try to reduce the influence it has on the decisions I make. Now, I will introduce you to my four personalities. First, the little girl. She is short and skinny, underweight even. About eight years old, perhaps a little younger than that. Short hair, big brown eyes. She is sitting there with a heavily hunched posture. I can feel her presence, not in my head, but somewhere in my chest. Her goal in life is to be cute, kind, and obedient. She wants to be useful, to live for others, not for herself. She can't stand aggression, denying it can even exist. Doesn't know how to be competitive. But that's just outward behavior, a particular strategy for interacting with the world. Here is a girl who would do anything to make everyone happy, to make people's eyes bright with kindness. Live for your own pleasure. She hates this phrase with a passion. She plans to become a scientist, to work on research projects. The girl dreams of a quiet, peaceful life inside of herself. She does everything slowly. When I'm her, I become a little sluggish. The girl tries to always seem happy. She refuses to accept unfortunate events, pretending they cannot happen. This personality looks for ways to create beauty, which fosters love towards the weak and defenseless. When I am her, I become gentle and agreeable. I want to stay at home and draw.
This girl became like this because she cannot stand aggression. One loud word and she curls into a fetal position. Because of her, I couldn't work around strangers. By the time I was 30, I had already changed jobs eight times and lived off my husband's money. This girl inside me is a scared, cornered animal who doesn't want to accept it. She fears people like fire, even though she denies it. When I'm the little girl and I hear someone fighting, I switch to another personality. Let's call her the beauty. During therapy, I, the little girl, saw the reasons why I chose those behavioral strategies. I realized that my real internal state was that of constant horror at the world. That knowledge turned into feelings of self-hatred, abhorrence of my own weakness. The little girl could never grow up, blossom into a fully-fledged young woman. The beauty did that for her. The beauty was never a child. She was born an adult. Her distinguishing characteristic is her inflated sense of self-importance. She treats humans like tools that she can use to get ahead in life. Her only desire is to be beautiful so that people like her. She planned to live to 30 and then die unless she had become the most famous and popular woman on earth by then. Yes, during therapy I have, unfortunately, found out that I considered myself a veritable goddess. A goddess who descended from the heavens to make men weak and malleable, to dote on them until they are left with nothing but the desire to love. The beauty is the best, and she will simply ignore anyone who doesn't agree with that. That is how she avoids danger. She earnestly believed that if you are the best, then nobody can hurt you, that no one can harm a deity. Just like the little girl, she wanted to be safe. In reality, something has got to be wrong with her, she thought. She has no right to exist. Someone could attack and hurt her at any moment. This uncontrollable fear of people became the basis for every one of my personalities. The beauty was different because she felt nothing but hatred for people unless they worshipped her. A true sociopath. It was a mechanism of coping with reality. I can't overcome my obsessions with rational thinking. I, the beauty, want to be special, to be the best. It becomes my main need. I feel horrid apathy if I don't get what I want. If the little girl wants to change the world for the better and make people stop being cruel, the beauty wants to attract attention to herself. She fills herself with vibrant emotions, constantly on the move, always changing friends and social circles. While the little girl wants to sit at home and study, the beauty doesn't intend to work and instead goes clubbing. A goddess belongs on Olympus, after all. What I am writing about now was only discovered during self-reflection and therapy. Before that, I just constantly felt stress, humiliation, alienation, anger, and hatred. I was looking for something that could dull the pain, 
I started drinking a lot since I was in the ninth grade. Anyway, the beauty was so proud that she refused to wash the dishes or do chores. It all was humiliating to her. The beauty finally felt like a bad person when she met Anton, my current husband. For the first time ever, she reflected on her own behavior and motives. Up to this point, she has only had short-term relationships. None of her affairs have lasted longer than two or three months. It was because she had no use for men, she only wanted their adoration. If she had felt like she was no longer adored as much as she wanted, she would immediately start looking for a new victim. She dreamed of becoming a singer, a musician, an actress. Anyone who could show off on the stage and receive standing ovations. She wanted to surround herself with people who admired her. But the beauty ended up quitting her acting classes for Anton's sake. She thought, I can't leave Anton. Or I really am a bitch who doesn't give a damn about anyone. She decided that she can't become an actress. I think at that moment her decision was influenced by the other personalities. I love my husband so much that every one of my personalities feels happy with him, especially the little girl. That one trusts him more than herself. Next, we have the male personality. Let's call him the psychopath. He is intelligent. This is important. Because the first two personalities denied the importance of intelligence, even considering it a dangerous thing. They believed that it was enough for a woman to be soft and vibrant. I can't see the psychopath's face, only his broad shoulders. He has no body below the belt either. I first saw him as a small child, a boy, lying in some sort of cave, unable to see or hear anything. He only had a tiny crack through which he could see his parents, humans, while he cried and begged for help. But no one came to pull him outside. He was locked in that cave, unable to fully perceive the world. My therapist asked once, if you had met a person who had spent many years inside a cave, what would you do? I said, I'd think they are dangerous. I must be wary of them. I'd sit down some distance away from the cave, hoping that after a while they'd get used to me and come outside. But I wouldn't expect a close friendship with them. Would you take them with you? I would probably think they're better off in their cave. They've been living according to their own rules. I can only do so much to improve their lot. But as therapy went on, the psychopath became my primary personality for a while, because I couldn't keep up with the beauty's demands. I was 30. I hadn't become special, and now the beauty wanted to die. I was constantly hearing that suicidal voice inside my head. My therapist suggested that the psychopath is a splinter psyche, something I was born with, something that existed in me before I was exposed to society. He emerged because I wasn't allowed to express my emotions, to hate my father, 
I was forced to love him. But I felt it differently. It was a fear of feeling anything, down to the most basic senses. Through my self-reflection, I have given power to the psychopath. He realized that his perception of reality is flawed and was now convinced that the world can be a safe place. The psychopath had found some grounding, but at the same time, he began to destroy the beauty. He told her that she is foolish and cannot be in charge anymore. That made me completely lose my sense of identity. I don't know how to explain it, but I had no idea who I was anymore. Now I can see myself as separate parts all connected by the same pain. But there was a moment when I felt suspended in the air. My brain just turned off. I didn't know where I was and why. That was when the psychopath started coming out of his cave. The cave was still there, but now he could perceive the world on his own. He doesn't want to be friends with the other two personalities. He thinks they're too stupid. But he can't be whole and capable of interacting with the world on his own, alone. The psychopath didn't want to let the beauty be in charge because she only wanted to be in the center of attention. The psychopath isn't like that. He wants stability. The beauty doesn't let him stop and think. She ruins all of his plans. Together, we stopped being happy because we saw each other's pain. Now, none of us can go away and hide on their own. That would only make it all worse. The psychopath sometimes lets the beauty take charge for a while so she can feed on emotion and let us feel a little hope instead of constant apathy. The most important question is, if you can't get rid of pain, can you at least grow to enjoy it? When I'm the psychopath, I feel absolutely nothing. It's a strange and frightening feeling. The psychopath, like the beauty, doesn't belong to my parents. He has never been a part of a family, even though, in reality, he has been created as a result of years of mental abuse. Let me also tell you about the queen. The queen has long black hair and a tall, fit, tattooed body. She is even worse than the beauty because she thinks people exist only to be controlled. She hates them all just because. It's also a defense mechanism of sorts. People are nothing but ants and deserve nothing but to be manipulated. I can't write a lot about the queen. She still makes me disgusted with myself. I understand why she exists, but that doesn't help. The queen physically changes me. When I'm her and I look at the mirror, I see myself as more slender, taller, with higher cheekbones and a thinner chin. I, not sure in what particular personality, have always tried to reason with her. I said that her arrogance her belief that people aren't deserving of life, are wrong. I didn't want to feel those things, but the queen didn't care. 
After the psychopath had realized that his interpretation of reality was based on pain and fear, he changed somewhat. I think that somehow affected every personality, because the queen decided she no longer needed to humiliate people and boss them around like slaves. She was now in safety and could simmer down. And that neural network inside my head shut down. It's still there, but it's dormant. I'll tell you a little about the obsession that formed my personality and later became the cause for suicidal thoughts. I am the attempt to run away from my father, my mother, from the world I was forced to live in. I tried to create another world, one where they couldn't reach me. I live in the past, as if I am still 12, feeling constant fear. I can spend days on my bed, unable to even move to the sofa, because I think someone could come and kill me. I haven't deserved the right to live. Someone like me must eventually be crushed because some pathetic people don't belong in this world. It's an irrational state that is impossible to fight. You stop existing. The only thing that remains real is this feeling. There's nothing to love and respect me for. I have no right to live. I try to tell myself that isn't true, but it doesn't work. Why? During my childhood, I could never understand for what purpose I was born, if I only make adults irritated and angry. So I invented a purpose to make the pain bearable. I convinced myself that I came into the world to change it for the better. But unfortunately, I couldn't find a way to do so. It is my fault. I don't deserve to enjoy life. I try to convince myself that changing the world isn't my responsibility. And the next day, I wake up and can't leave my bed because of feelings of self-destructive hatred. I can't change the world. I can't make anyone feel better. And it is my fault. There is something hidden inside of me, some sacred knowledge. My responsibility is to discover it and give it to other humans so they can make cruelty go away, stop existing. I let myself believe in complete nonsense, because otherwise I have no motivation to live. I believe that my energy can change the world, if only at a distance of one inch. Next to me, people stop being aggressive monsters. If I stop believing that, then my entire being starts perceiving the world as a cold, unfeeling swamp that is pulling me into a sticky void. Maybe this isn't an obsession. Maybe it's the only right way to live. Yes, my mindset is completely unhealthy, but such is real life. The world doesn't exist to make people happy, but you also can't live in a state of constant horror. Everybody comes up with their own purpose, their own idea of a good life. My years of beauty have passed, and I no longer give people joy. That means I have no right to live. I'm no longer beautiful like a rose. So, time to die. Back when I was a little girl, 
I told myself that if I don't create a world where everyone is happy, I won't deserve to live. Fear also made me adhere to this idea of saving the world. I decided that I am a goddess that must be worshipped. No one would dare touch me because I am beautiful and sacred. Yes, a part of me really thought so. It was hidden deeply inside of my mind. Before I started practicing self-reflection, I couldn't even imagine the nonsense that my identity was based on. So, where does that fear come from? If I can't feel like a queen, then I start fearing for my life. I start feeling like someone is about to come and destroy me. It all started because of my father. When he was drunk, he stopped being human, turning into a predatory animal. I'd lay in my bed expecting him to get very angry and come into my room at any moment. Of course, I tried to tell myself that it's all in my head, but my brain wouldn't listen. All my past decisions were based on fear, fear of the hatred my parents felt towards me. I couldn't even hold a regular job, thanks to the mechanism that kept telling me, if you don't make the world better, you will be killed. Because of this, I've always worked in the cultural sphere. It let me convince myself that I'm doing something that can influence other people. A compromise of sorts. I had no right to do something for myself. I had to make others happy. Otherwise, my brain would tell me that I'm evil. A moral freak. But later, I realized that I couldn't change the world after all. The thought drove me completely insane. I started hating myself for my inability to create a beautiful world. When I first saw the connection between the fear of death and the desire to change the world for the better, I thought that I could finally free myself from my obsession, and I felt great for a whole day. Going to bed, I thought, there are good people in the world, and I am definitely going to meet some of them. Then the next day came. I woke up but couldn't rise from my bed, just lying there in a fetal position. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to see people. There was once again the fear that I was going to be killed. I spent an hour trying to convince myself that it's safe outside. It's just my brain acting silly. The scariest part is that all of this isn't just a thought or an idea inside of my head. I feel like it occupies my entire head, or at least most of it. I understand how invalid this mindset is, but I still can't change it. It is based on animalistic fear. Only depressed people need a purpose in life. Maybe that's true. When life is scary and painful, you have no idea how you're supposed to live. I live in a constant state of fear on a physical level, deep aversion to the idea of simply leaving the house. It feels like little bombs going off inside of my body. What a regular person would feel, seeing a knife-wielding bandit running after them. I feel when someone accidentally looks at me wrong. So who am I? What do I live for? My hatred for people is based on fear. What if they found out that I'm no longer trying to make their world better? and destroy me for that. 
Hatred is the mechanism that forces me to stay home. I can't even go to the store. I'm too afraid. But if we speak about my obsession frankly, I'm mostly focused on myself. I want to change my own world, to make people around me kinder, so that my fear of them goes away. This makes my life into a constant struggle, a search for ways to start thinking differently, to change myself, to become a new person. I remember how I was broken by the truth about who I am. I came to another session with my therapist, and she decided to sum up the results of our meetings. She took out a stack of graph paper, on which she wrote down all of my states, diagnoses, and processes that we talked about. I looked at those sheets, and something inside me broke. Suddenly, I stopped being special. Up to that point, I saw my illness as an art form, something that made me unique. That flattered the deity. Then, in a single instant, I was reduced to nothing, to a pathetic creature trying to run away from reality, from truth. I realized, perhaps for the first time ever, that I'm not a deity, but rather a perfectly regular, scared child. That day, I quit therapy and stopped taking my meds for a while. I realized who I actually am, and that terrified me. I lost control over the situation and started wallowing in self-pity. I lost purpose in life and entered a suicidal state. My whole body was overtaken by self-destructive desires. One time, I tried taking piano lessons, but quit very quickly, realizing it was too late to become a great musician. I became Frankenstein's monster in my own eyes patched together from pieces of different identities. My family saved me, my husband and child. I wanted to live for their sake, if for nothing else. Doctors had very little idea what to do about me, so I had to find my own cure. While we were looking for my original personality, my therapist thought that I could discover some motivations and dreams in there something that could help with my apathy. But no. Reality turned out to be far scarier than fiction. I want to be special wasn't just a whim. It was a way to overcome fear. At some point, my personality stopped wanting to live. All of them became despondent and apathetic because they couldn't get what they desired, what they thought to be essential. It was a terrifying time. I couldn't even sit down. Stress was so intense that it felt like my body was being torn apart. I slept for 20 hours a day, and the rest of the time I smoked. My therapist made me look for my original personality, the real me, thinking I could draw strength from it. But that didn't work. All of my personalities are real. I can't single out one that I feel the most comfortable in. Before therapy, I didn't even used to call those states personalities. They all were distinct parts of one whole. But even this perception of myself formed only after I started practicing self-reflection while trying to get out of the cult. When I was younger, back in college, my states felt like immense contradictions welling up inside of me. They were intense, like hurricanes, 
and took away my ability to act, but I didn't know why or how. Another contradiction became apparent later. I can consciously talk about these personalities inside my head, distinguish and conceptualize them, ask them questions, but which part of me is doing that? Maybe it was a new state of my brain, the result of self-reflection. Or was it just one of the personalities looking at the others? I want to believe that thanks to self-reflection, I managed to form a new personality. It isn't fully independent, of course, but it is capable of making the other personalities think and change. The moment I started doing self-reflection, I realized that I don't really want to be any of my personalities. They are all full of pain and burdened by unnatural desires, lust for power or isolation. I always wanted to become a person who has created a large family, a woman who is open to helping others. But that never happened. A part of me wanted to be a deity in flesh. I did everything I could to stop experiencing this desire, but that only made it stronger. It's hard to explain. I still don't understand how everything works. I can only describe my own experiences. I couldn't draw strength from my original personality because it was splintered and for a reason. Let's imagine for a moment that my real personality is the little girl. Why would anyone want to be her? It is unbearable. I decided to rebuild myself to create a new personality completely independent from the ones that were already there. But that also didn't help. The personalities resisted, intensifying internal conflicts. The only important question was being solved, the question of survival. And every personality tried to defend itself from fear. In the end, I gave up on trying to set up or find a one-stop shop in my head. I decided that I am going to help every personality in turn. Eventually, they learned how to get along and negotiate with each other. It was like watching an epic movie unfold. I could see several people talking inside my head, deciding my destiny, while I could do nothing but observe. I think that happens to everyone, but on a smaller scale. My therapist also suggested to merge my identities. It was a terrible idea, no different from killing off several people who live inside of you. It created a real massacre in my head. I couldn't leave my bed for a week. The best option was to look for the pain that was guarded by my personalities and try to relive it, change the experiences that were once recorded by my brain as the foundation of my whole existence. With time, a new personality emerged on her own, one that I could call the real me. She wanted to live and didn't seem to be any of the old personalities. She came into existence as a result of me developing an understanding of the processes happening in my head. Probably the most unusual part is the fact that eventually my personalities started self-reflecting on their own. Of course, it involved searching for the basis of their needs, which in turn led to realizing new goals. But each of them gave up at some stage of self-reflection. They didn't change. Their inner life remained stable. Unfortunately, the only result was mounting desperation from realizing my failure, 
it felt like there were several monolithic blocks that couldn't be broken in any way. It's so weird to know that inside of you there exist at least four people disillusioned with life. I had only one solution. While the psychopath was active, I'd let the others rest and feel only his problems. The little girl was ready to compromise with the psychopath, but the queen wasn't. Time also passed differently. As the little girl, I spent more time in the present. Minutes went by slowly. The queen, on the other hand, required vivid sensations. I always plug into this personality when I go outside for a walk. You can see yourself as the result of thinking, or as thinking itself. Those are two very different things. Everything became much simpler when I gave names to my personalities and compartmentalized them. Now I could single each of them out and work with a particular personality. That made analyzing internal contradictions so much easier. I could create new patterns of thinking that could challenge past conclusions and concerns. The personalities emerged in the first place because I wanted to be someone without a past. As I've written above, the queen has never been a child. She has no knowledge of living in a family. It was relieving to learn that I have disassociative identity disorder. It helped me stop feeling like an insignificant speck alone in the universe. I realized that I have the right to create a new personality and keep on living. That I can become whoever I wanted. It helped me understand that personality is something flexible, something that can be consciously modified. It's paradoxical, but when I was given that diagnosis, I started believing in myself. I thought that if my brain can do all of this, then surely it can fit one more personality. I gave myself an objective, become a new person. But to build a new personality model, I needed new information, a new way of interpreting myself. It was necessary for my brain to understand itself so it could survive. I felt that and it became the starting point for many deep changes. My brain realized that it has big problems, that it has been lied to. Now it wanted to know what is preventing it from functioning normally. I had a feeling that my brain is trying to puzzle itself out. My self-reflection was directed towards overcoming internal contradictions and avoiding panic attacks. That's how the brain works. In order for it to start thinking, it must be given a puzzle, a task, then fed new information. There was also another system which helped a lot. It analyzed incoming data based on the objective of change the world for the better. The little girl grew up, but was still looking for her place in the world. I walk down the street with my daughter, and I feel endlessly irritated by something. I want to scream, but I don't. I understand that it is just me. Nothing bad is happening. My daughter is right next to me. But who am I at this moment? I am the combination of how my body and brain react to stimuli, how I interpret those reactions, and how I ultimately react based on these givens. For me, the most important quality in people is how well they can control their impulses. The unconscious is something we haven't explored yet. Unconscious thinking happens on its own without feedback and processing by consciousness.
Such thinking is based on prior experiences. But there is also a different kind of thinking, thinking about thinking. When one tries to reconstruct their own thoughts, they ask themselves questions. I changed because I forced myself to act differently, to develop new skills and combat old habits, in order to eventually discard them when I have the opportunity to, when my life analysis manages to produce something big and self-sustaining. All this became possible because there was now a goal, to figure out the mechanisms of thinking, to understand how it works. Only by reflecting on my different personalities can I change the system as a whole. Because all of my personalities are connected, based on the same feelings of fear and revulsion, there can be results only if I work with this fear. I can't change the fact that my parents are unhappy. You can't change the past. I think children blame themselves for their inability to stop their parents from fighting. To see adults being unhappy and cruel is a horrible thing. I wanted to make my parents happy, even if only for a short while. But as time went and I relieved that desire, I managed to liberate myself from it. I accepted that it has always been out of my hands. For the first time in my life, I had a thought that I was born to be happy, even if I couldn't find happiness at home with my parents. The most vital part of my journey was conquering the fear I felt towards other people. And here, the most important thing was realizing that I can never go back to my childhood, that I will never live with my parents again. It's strange, but it took years to convince myself of this. Important discovery I made along the way. I can only feel real joy when I talk to other people. At some point during my therapy, I started experiencing emotion more vividly. The psychopath had stopped holding his feelings back. He had opened himself to the world. I realized that people from my past aren't to blame for who they were and how they acted. I don't know if that is the right way to think, but it makes it easier to live. For the longest time, I lived with programming that told me you're wrong your way of thinking is bad and ugly. At some point, I even started hating myself for feeling what I felt. Of course, that made my thinking more stressed and disjointed. The way my brain works is still magic to me, because when I decided to accept myself as someone who is full of hatred, frustration, and revulsion for the world, those conditions of mine immediately stopped pushing on the edges of my consciousness. It's as if they lost weight, like they used to be bricks, and now they became air balloons. As soon as I stopped hating myself for my illness, my thinking has changed. Mindfulness practices helped me. I took an eight-week MBSR course. I've practiced meditation before that, but it was a long time ago. And after my experiences in the cult, I looked down on such methods for a while. But if you take the ideology out of meditation, then you get very effective exercises. In my particular case, it helped me feel myself in the here and now, in the present, whole and not as disparate personalities and their needs. I learned how to see myself as part of a family next to my husband and daughter. On a physical level, I felt that I am something different from what I used to think about myself. 
I accepted my illness with respect and irony. I stopped trying to combat intrusive thoughts. My brain sorted childhood trauma out as best it could. Now was time to start living with dignity. There were many questions. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live if I am no longer trying to figure out the secret knowledge of how to make people happy? Who am I without this obsession? When going outside, I kept repeating the mantra, I am here, I am a good person. One night I woke up from the feeling that I want to die. I got out of bed, paced down the hallway a bit, had a glass of water from the kitchen, but my state only kept getting worse. I went back to bed and woke my husband up, asked him what my name is. Galia, he said. I started repeating my name and then my age. I didn't feel like I am myself. It's hard to explain, but my body became alien to me and my brain was overwhelmed by thoughts of my own worthlessness. The queen was taking over. The queen was only 30 and she never aged further, meaning that the real me, the one lying in bed, had no right to exist. I jumped out of bed and ran to the closet. I put on my new sweatshirt, a pair of jeans, a sweater, one more sweatshirt, a knit cap, and a jacket for good measure. The clothes returned me to myself. It helped. Then I went to my room and took some books that I bought recently. I brought those to my bed and laid down, hugging them. Five minutes later, I calmed down. I was in charge of my body again. The queen went away. It was a terrifying episode. However, it showed that Galia exists. Someone distinct from all those other personalities that were created by fear. This Galia wanted to live differently. She was unlike the personalities who lusted for power. The next day, I thought, for the first time in my life, that people can like me for who I am, even if I am not actively changing the world or trying to make them happy. It was important to start creating something new, because that's the only way the brain can be changed. I started inventing new neural connections, and through them came fresh thoughts. I took up drawing, practicing yoga, playing the theremin, and most importantly, writing stories. My new goal is to broadcast my self-acceptance. I believe that many people feel stressed because they want to be someone they aren't.